Uh, and if you're new here at Fullness and you have a child sixth grade and below, just uh, send them with them. Wow, a lot of you look older to be headed that way. If you would take your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15. <clears throat> when I was younger, um, if someone claimed to be an atheist or an agnostic, uh, but an agnostic or an atheist, however you, whichever the two, two terms, um, they were, it was just their choice kind of thing. They saw themselves as more of a quiet, hey, I, you want to believe in God? Fine, you believe in God, but I don't, so let's just go with it. Over the past 15 years, there's been a, a new atheist movement that has come about that is much more militant and progressive in its communication about um, their belief that there is not a God. Uh, it's become much more uh, in your face, so to speak. And one of the, the, the leading uh, proponents of this over the years is Richard Dawkins, and in a quote uh, he wrote in a book called The God Delusion, he writes the following. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Now you can see where his position is right off the bat when he uses the term fiction. He goes on and describes the God of the Old Testament as this, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving, control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, um, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. That's how he describes the God of the Old Testament. And I'm not going to read that quote again because I can barely say those words one time, uh, much, less, much less twice. I, I have to confess that there are times when I read the Old Testament that I say, God, what were you up to? I had one of those readings just this morning as I'm reading the Bible through. I was reading the end of Numbers where God tells the Israelites to absolutely wipe out the Midianites. I mean, kill them all. And we come to those places and we see Dawkins' description of the God of the Old Testament, and at times we come to this belief, you know, it must be that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are two different gods. Um, maybe there's some ex explanation, but I'll just dismiss it as God of the Old Testament was this judgmental, kill them all kind of God, and the God of the New Testament is more of a God of grace and love. Maybe God changed or something, but he seems much nicer in the New Testament uh, than he did in the Old Testament. And I would say that uh, this is simply not true. In the sense of this, God is a God of holiness and judgment, and there is this progressive revelation, as it's called, of God to man, meaning God continues to reveal himself more and more to mankind over the years, but God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he is also pictured in the Old Testament, if we read it, a God of grace and a God of love and a God of mercy. These parts of his nature are always the same. And what I would like to do over the next four weeks as we lead into our celebration of Resurrection Sunday of Easter is to look at some of the, the ways that God speaks of his love and grace and mercy in a prophetic sense in the Old Testament about the cross and the resurrection. I want to look back at the Old Testament and see how God, uh, through people and at times, proclaims and shows the cross is coming. I, I have made this claim over the years uh, through different series, and it's this, that Jesus is the interpretive key that unlocks the, old, the whole Bible. He unlocks the Old Testament. You cannot read the Old Testament accurately without reading Jesus into it. Now, some people take issue with that, saying, oh, Pastor, you're just 
You're, you're, you're seeing Jesus everywhere. You're absolutely right, I am. I, I believe I see, and to understand the Old Testament, we have to see God's purpose and plan, and God is consistently revealing his plan. So I want to look at not just prophetic literature. It'd be easy for me to go to um, uh, Jeremiah, Isaiah, some of the prophets, and pull out passages, and I will look on one Sunday at a prophetic passage from Isaiah, but I'd also like to look at some different types of literature in the Old Testament to show how God speaks. So today, we're going to go all the way back to the beginning. We're going to go to the book of Genesis to see how God speaks of the coming of Christ and then demonstrates it. So I want to look at two different passages. I'm going to look at Genesis 3, and then I want to look at Genesis chapter 15, these two passages are not generally considered prophetic literature, but I believe they picture and prophesy of the coming of uh, Christ and the cross. <clears throat> and here's the, here's the fun part about this. Uh, I'm really excited about this sermon. I hope you hang with me through it. I think it's going to be awesome. I'm going to walk through two scripture passages for, for a while, most of the sermon. And then at the end, I'm just going to draw a couple of conclusions about what that can mean for us today. So I, I love it when we get to just walk through Scripture together. It's one of my most favorite things to do is to look at the Word of God, and I think it will speak for itself, and I'll be able to uh, open up a couple of uh, things about it. But here's what I want you to see headed straight in. The first prophet of the cross is God himself comes directly from him. It's not from God through a person to us. It's from God to mankind. And God starts immediately after the fall of man, speaking of the coming of Christ. So back in Genesis 3, you know, man rebels. Adam and Eve take the fruit, hide from God, are confronted from, by God. They confess sort of what took place. And here's what God says to them in Genesis 3.16. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Eve, because of rebellion, because of sin, is affected in two significant ways in her life. Her relationship to her husband and in having children. In the moments of life's greatest joys and blessings, there's going to be a reminder of the pain of rebellion. And then to Adam, verses 17 and following, he said, Because you have listened to your wife and ate from the tree uh, about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam, Eve, Eve is, is given these words, hey, there's always going to be this tension between you and your husband. There's going to be pain in childbirth. Uh, by the way, we still see the effects of this rebellion today, right? There is tension in marriage. Marriage is hard. It's a challenge. The difference in genders and the way we relate to one another. Pain in childbirth. And to Adam, the satisfaction of work is going to be replaced with toil and labor. It's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. We see these. And to the serpent, here's what I want to get to, but to the serpent, here is what God says. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. There is an animosity between man and evil. There's this tension between the serpent or evil, the Satan, uh, the enemy, and mankind. This, this pull where we, we don't want, as a general 
population. We don't want to do evil, but we do it. We're always, he's, he's, he's hitting our heel with evil and we're trying to crush his head. But there's, th- this, is, this is the early gospel. Uh, the early church fathers called this the proto-evangelium or early gospel, the, the early vestiges of the gospel. And it's this, it is a word about the coming of Jesus. Your seed, not seeds, but seed will strike his head and you'll strike his heel. And on the cross, when Christ died, the enemy felt like he had won in killing Jesus, but the victory of the cross crushed the head of the enemy. That should cause all of us to say, Amen and hallelujah. This thought that, that, I mean, think about this. God in his grace and mercy, he does, he does give reminders about the rebellion. But at the same time, in his love and grace and mercy, he proclaims the cross from the moment man falls from there on out. Jesus is coming. Death, evil will be defeated. By the way, does this sound like an evil, hateful God? To me, it sounds like a God of love and grace and mercy. Yes, he proclaims some results of the rebellion of mankind that man and woman are going to suffer, but in it, he also proclaims there's going to be victory. Several hundred years later, By the way, just a couple of passages that are so wonderful for this. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. The fulfillment of that early prophetic word that comes through through Jesus. In Romans 5.19, it says, For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. Just as Adam sinned, sin came into the world, through the obedience of the one man, Jesus' righteousness enters back into the world. All right, hundreds of years later, God calls out of a pagan culture a man named Abram. Abraham. Um, He's in this country known as Ur of the Chaldees. And it's a pagan culture. And he calls Abraham or Abram to follow him. And here's the point. Abram, think about this. Abram is this pagan worshiper. God comes to him and says, hey, If you'll follow me, I will make you the father of a great nation, and I'll give you a land, and you will prosper. And and Abram, it's almost as if he he, he could have said, okay, who are you? I don't even know this God. I don't know this God. Now, there's some indication maybe his father had had a call on his life. Anyway, the point being this, it's God's grace and mercy that comes to Abram. God chooses Abram and calls him to follow him, and Abraham says yes. He had no assurance that God was going to fulfill what he said. He didn't even know really this God he's following. He doesn't know that much about him, but he chooses to follow God. God promises him that he'll be the father of a great nation and that he'll have a land. At this point, Abraham has no children, an old wife, He's old himself, and he has no land. He doesn't even know where this land is. It's not like God says, if you go to this land, I'm going to give you this land. He just says, God says, follow me. I'll tell you when. So Abraham, Abram, sets out. He goes to a land. Over a period of time, he is very successful. I mean, he, he, he gets to Canaan, starts settling there becomes very prosperous. Um, if you read up through Genesis 15, you see Abraham doing great things. In, as a matter of fact, in chapter 14, Abraham, uh, his son Lot, is captured by four kings of the north, and uh, Abram gets his 
crew together. He's already got like three, over 300 men in his camp that, have been, that are a part of it that have been either born there. or I mean, he's been very prosperous in the years he's been there. And he sets out after these four kings. He, he conquers them. He, he gets Lot back. He captures the spoil of these four kings. He comes back. He, by the way, he offers a tribute to Melchizedek. And all of this is in chapter 14. And really, chapter 15 is very interesting because Abraham has just come through this incredible victory. And after the victory, like happens so many times, it's almost like he is, there's a weakness in his heart. There's a, there's a problem. And he sees the problem. And in Genesis chapter 15, it says this, after this, meaning after the victory and the Melchizedek stuff and all the stuff that happens, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. He said, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Abram sees the problem. Okay, I was promised I'm going to be the father of a great nation. I've got all this stuff now, but really, what, what good is all this stuff? Because I have nobody to inherit it. I have no child, which in this culture is a really big deal. And the promise of God was that he would have heirs and he'd be the father of a great nation. So he's got this stuff. He's come through this victory. And he says to God, I still got the same problem. Now I'm even much older and my wife is old as well as... He's saying in essence. By the way, I think it, it's incredible that God says this statement and, and then Abram questions him. What does God say to Abram? Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. God has just said to him, look, in the past, you just had this great victory. Don't be afraid. I'm your shield, your very great reward. He's seeing into Abram's heart that's, that says, there's fear there. There is a fear that you think I'm not going to keep my promises. I've just shown you, and I'll show you again. And Abram, at least he articulates it. He says, yeah, you're my shield, my great reward. Well, he doesn't say it like that, but he says, oh, sovereign Lord, <laughs> what can you give me? Since I'm still childless. He's saying, okay, all this other stuff is great, but now i am still got no child. I'm still not there. And it's as if God is saying, Abram, don't worry about it. I got you. For some of you today, you just need to hear that word. Hey, I got you. The sovereign Lord of the universe is your great reward. He is your shield. Now, some of you may sit there right away and say, yeah, that was for Abraham, not me. No, that is for you. And I'll continue on and show you why even this applies to us. Then the word of the Lord, in verses 4 and 5, came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. So he took him outside and said, look up at the heavens, count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. The word offspring there could be translated seed. So shall your seed be. So shall your offspring be. By the way, it's a singular, it's not plural, which is very important for what I'm going to kind of jump into in a second. In other words, he's not saying, so shall you. He is saying, look at the stars. So shall your offspring. They're going to be as numerous as the star, but it's, it, there's a singular seed here that's going to cause the stars to shine. Have you ever... I know I just probably confused a couple of you, but just hang on, I'll show you. Have you ever been out in the country or the mountains where there are no city lights, nothing to dim the incredible brightness of the stars, and you look up and you're like, unbelievable. 
For me, it always happens in the mountains. When I go to like the Rocky Mountains, I go there annually or some other place where you're away from the city lights and especially if you're at altitude and you're looking up at the stars and can you imagine trying to count them? Even with the naked eye, you can't count the stars. And Abram goes outside, he looks up at the stars, and God says, so shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham, Abram, takes God at his word. What changed from, what had changed for Abram? In other words, had his situation, had his circumstance changed? No, at some point, he believed God. He's questioning God, but now he believes God, and it's credited to him as righteousness. By the way, this, is, this quote, this line, is a theme of the book of Romans. Paul pulls it out and uses it over and over again in the book of Romans to say and talk about faith and righteousness. Righteousness means being made right with God. Being made right with God. Where man sinned and rebellion entered and a division happened, we're declared unrighteous because of our sin. Now God is saying through faith you receive, it's credited to you as righteousness. Paul uses this whole passage in Romans 4 when he says this, against all hope, Abraham in hope believed, and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. You get the picture here, Paul's graphically saying, Abraham received the word that he's going to be the father of many nations, but he's 100 years old. He's as good as dead. His wife's 90. Her womb's more than dead. I mean, he's being very direct. And it goes on and says, yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words, this is great, the words, it was credited to him, were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. God is giving Abraham a picture, a word about the stars, and Abraham believes, and it's credited to him as righteousness, and Paul is saying, we stand in that same line. Our faith is in Jesus, but when we receive Jesus in faith, we receive righteousness. Now, I want you to get really excited. It even gets better than this. Over in Galatians, Paul says, this, are you, I don't, I'm not sure you're having near as much fun with this as I am, but uh, here we go. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. What is Paul claiming here? He's saying, so shall your offspring be, so shall your seed be. He's not saying, Paul is saying, God's not saying the promise is to the seeds. Paul is saying that he's going to come through a seed, which is Jesus. Now, here's where Paul really hits it out of the park with this and makes a huge jump, and he says this. Consider Abraham. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He's using that line. And then he goes on and says, Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. This one line to me is 
massive in the prophetic picture of God. In other words, Paul is saying this. Paul is saying Abraham went out, he looked at the stars, God said, you're going to be the father of great nations, so shall your offspring be. Abraham looks up and he says, yeah, wow, that's great. I'm going to believe. It's credited to me as righteousness. And, and Abraham at one level, and it's true, prophetic literature uh, I think has different interpretations at different times. And, and he's saying your physical offspring will number like the stars. But Paul is making this incredible claim that this, through the seed of Jesus, those who believe it's credited to them as righteousness. And those are the stars that Abraham saw. Abraham didn't even know it. But the stars that he saw that come from Jesus and ultimately came from Abraham, the seed of Abraham, Jesus, through us, we are those stars. You are those stars. Not just the nation of Israel or the Jewish people, though that's one level of prophetic interpretation. But more importantly, Paul is saying, those stars that Abraham saw are us. The, to me, this is, I, I, I can't even get my head around it at times. That 4,000 years ago, God took this guy out of a pagan culture, led him to a land, told him to go outside, look at the stars, and what he saw was you and me. Not even knowing about the coming of coming of the Messiah. Verses 7 and 8. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abraham said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? Now you might be saying, wow, man, Abraham is just like, he is like on a rubber band here. God is this great reward. Okay, I believe. It's credit to him as righteousness. Abraham, look at the stars of your offspring. Now he comes back. Okay, I'm going to give you the land. Uh, how am I going to know? Now, I think Abraham's question is more like this. I don't really have time. I'm 100 years old. Not only do I not have a child, but how am I going to take possession of this land to the level that I, I take the whole thing? Verses 9 and following. So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. Very quickly, let me give you the picture. At night, Abram... Of course, he's the stars, right? It's nighttime. God says, do this with these animals. So the next day, next morning, Abram goes, gets all the animals, kills them, cuts them in half, puts them on either side with a path going down the middle of the dead animals. And then he has to wait all day. Because God said, so as typical, the vultures, the birds of prey are coming to try and eat the animals that Abram has arranged. Now, this is, a, this is a very graphic picture. This is a very bloody, smelly, I mean, some of you just are getting, you know, just ill thinking about these animals cut in half and all the blood and gore and the birds and Abraham having to fight them off during the day. For us who don't know what's going on here, uh, there is a covenant that's being set. Uh, the Abrahamic covenant is being pictured here, as it's called. And we don't, we don't work covenantally. We talk about the covenant of marriage, but other than that, we don't work covenantally. We work contractually. Um, we make a contract between people. But a covenant was a contract, but much more intense. And without going into all the details of a covenant, there are different ways that it could be set. It could be set between two equal parties. Two parties come together, uh, let's say two kings who are equal in power, and they come together and they say, hey, let's make a covenant. It's like a treaty, but much bigger. And they're saying, 
okay, I won't attack you, you don't attack me, we'll trade with one another, and then if anyone attacks us, we'll, we'll come together, your enemy will be my enemy, kind of thing. Two equal parties. And then they would like cut the animals or they'd do something. But in this case, the animals are dead and they're in a path and the two parties would walk the path between the dead animals and basically say, hey, be it unto me like these animals if I break this covenant. You know, we don't work that way. You know, we're, we're, we're writing contracts with outs. Maybe they won't read the whole contract even and I'll have an out here and get... We don't work in that manner. There is also the, the type of covenant that were between two unequal parties, one much more powerful and one weaker, and they have names, but the weaker party is generally called the vassal. And so usually the weaker party is in a position of not being able to defend themselves, so they come to a stronger party and say, look, I want to make a covenant with you to protect me, and I'll give you things, and I'll be faithful to you. And, and generally in this situation the weaker party would go through. The stronger party doesn't have to go through because they're already like, I'm the stronger party. You're making a covenant with me. I don't even need this covenant. And they would go through and they would say, be it unto me like these animals. If I don't do what I've promised, I'm going to support you. I'm going to defend you in what, doing what I can. Thank you for not killing me is basically what they're saying. Thank you for uh, allowing us to, to move on. Now, in this situation, is there a stronger and a weaker party? Absolutely. God, Abraham. And so this covenant is being cut, so to speak. The animals have been killed. There's a path. Abram's defended. That night, it's going to say, Abram's going to fall into a sleep. Here's what it says. Let me read the, I'm going to read the rest of the chapter, comment on it just, just briefly. As the sun was setting... Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. We know that happens, right? Joseph, his descendants, then Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob's descendants are in Egypt, and they're going to be delivered. And then he goes on. God, This is God speaking. But I will punish the nation, Egypt as we know later, that will, they will serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. In, in a sense, God is saying to Abraham, hey, you're right, you're, you're not going to really possess the land in your lifetime, but your descendants will. Hundreds of years from now, they're going to take the land. Then look what happens. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river of the Euphrates, uh, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Raphaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. First, God tells Abram, Abraham um, that his physical descendants are going to be captured in Egypt. They're going to be delivered. They're going to come back. They're going to possess the land. I promise you that. And then something incredible happens. Rather than Abram being the one, the weaker vessel, weaker party to pass between the pieces, this smoking pot and blazing torch, which are symbols that Abraham would have recognized from his history of being God. God's presence passes between the pieces. Now, on one level, God is saying, I'm, I'm promising you this and I will deliver. But I think there's a much huger prophetic picture that's taking place here. You see, God, God, God is, God, all God's promises are yes and amen. God didn't need to make a covenant with Abraham in the sense of 
All, all God has to do is say it, and it's going to be. But God is assuring Abraham that his promises are yes and amen by making this covenant. But God is going through the pieces, and he's saying, he's not saying, be it unto me if I don't fill this covenant like these animals. Because God can't lie. God is being truthful. Rather, here's what I believe is happening. God is looking at Abram and his descendants, and he's saying, I'm giving you this incredible deal, but you're not going to be able to uphold your end. You can't, you can't live like I'm calling you to live. You can't live this holy, faithful life that I've called you to be and to have. So he, what he's basically saying to Abraham is this, be it unto me if you don't fill this covenant. Unto you, this should be your punishment, but instead, may it be like me as these animals if you don't uphold your end. I believe that at one level he's promising Abraham the land and the people, but at another he's picturing for us Jesus on the cross. That God did come in flesh was crucified, died for our sins. And the rest of the Old Testament, to me, is a long march to the cross. It's a long history of showing how the people over and over and over and over again failed to live up to what God has called them to. How the people at times just rebelled against God, worshipped other gods, forsake forsook God, just like we all have. All of us have gone our own way. But at the cross, the head of the enemy was crushed. At the cross, the penalty of the part of the Abrahamic covenant that people couldn't fulfill, the nation of Israel couldn't fulfill, was fulfilled. At the cross, we are made right with God because God took the penalty of our rebellion upon himself. To me, everything changes in Genesis chapter 15. To me, it's a key passage in the Bible where God pictures what is coming. It's the prophetic picture of the cross as God walks between the pieces. So what does it mean to us today? Let me just give you three truths that I believe you can find security in God. You can find security in God. God is still at work. He's going to accomplish his purposes because life, because he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Yesterday, one of the, one of the young men that my son played soccer with from age 10 through age 18. We had his funeral because a week and a half ago he took his own life. 28 years old. At some point, he reached the place where he I believe he reached the place where he had said, I've blown it so big, I can never get life back. And what the cross says to me is, you've never blown it that bad. God is saying, I'll take the, I took the penalty on me so that you can be secure in me. Romans 8, of course, says, if God is for us, who can be against us? I, I'm not going to comment on this much, but let me just say this. If God is for you, even you can't be against you so much that you've blown it that bad. I mean, we see all these external things. If God is for us, who can be against me? Oh, the enemy, this person, that person. Hey, look, the, the one you're battling most of the time is you. And, and I want to say, you haven't blown it that bad. Life is not hopeless. 
you can be secure in him. And if there's anything the cross tells us, it tells us this. He loved us so bad that even before you were born, he said, when they blow it, be it like me, that these animals, I'll take the penalty that you deserve on me. That's how much God loves us. Does this sound like a malevolent, dictatorial, hateful God? As a result, you can put your trust in God. You can put your trust in God. God always keeps his promises. I mean, this is, this is the part that's unbelievable to me. Abraham existed 2,100 years before Jesus. The cross comes, I mean, all of the prophetic words concerning the nation of Israel are fulfilled. Cross comes 2,000 years later. We're 2,000 years on the other side. 4,000 years of God's promises being fulfilled. He's got a good track record. You can put your trust in him. There's a story about this little girl who went to get a shot. And she was getting her a booster shot. And the, the doctor held up the syringe and said to her, which arm? And she said, yours. <laughs> That's, yeah, not mine. Put it in. Stick it in your own, buddy. You know, many of us, we, we've, when it comes right down to it, we got a trust problem. We don't really. We, we sort of trust God, but we don't really believe that God will come through. Because we've seen failures. We've seen issues in our life. We've stumbled. We've fallen. We've wondered where God is. Yesterday at this funeral, I, I, I just acknowledged to the people there that, that in, on this soccer team, we celebrated the victories with with. These boys who became young men, and we agonized in their defeat. And that yesterday felt like a big defeat. It felt like a loss magnified worse than ever. Does that mean we still can't trust God? I would say it's exactly at that moment we need to trust in God. Psalmist says, I lift my eyes up to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. When you're looking to put your trust somewhere, don't look at your circumstances. Don't look at the people around you. I encourage you to lift your eyes up to the mountains. That's where your help will come from. Paul says in Romans, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in Him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Trust in Him. It's going to lead by the power of the... Over don't we... Don't I, I want this. I'm not speaking in complete sentences, but I want to overflow with hope. I want to be filled with all joy. How does that happen? Trust in Him. Securely trust in Him, and by the power of the Spirit, this can happen. Third point, final point is this. You can be grateful to God. You can be grateful to God. Abraham believed, and it was credited to him as righteousness. God chose Abraham. What did Abraham do to get chosen? Let me say it again. What did Abraham do to get chosen? He did nothing. God chose him, said, follow me. Abraham said, okay, I'll go. So when Abraham gets to this point, does Abraham have anything to be ungrateful to God about? No, because he was nobody in Ur of the Chaldees, and God said, hey, I'm choosing you, pal. Abraham could have said, you know what, God, you haven't really, and he is in the sense that, you know, you really haven't come through for me yet. What do you mean I haven't come through? You just conquered four kings took all their riches, rescued your nephew. You've got this land. You've got all these people. I am your shield. I am your ever great reward. Abraham's response should be, rather than looking at what he doesn't have, to look at what he does have. 
Many of us are in a struggle today in faith because our eyes are constantly fixed on what we don't have rather than what we have. Rather than being grateful to God, we're being ungrateful for this. I don't have fill in the blank. I don't have the resources, relationships, the spouse, the children. I'm ungrateful because I have children. Uh, no, I'm not. I'm just saying, I'm ungrateful because I have a spouse. You know, sometimes we it goes like this. I'm ungrateful for the one you gave me. I, you know, you understand what I'm saying? We live in a constant state of having to battle for gratefulness because we constantly focus on what we don't have rather than what we have. Romans 5. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have power, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. I'm not going to comment on it other than to say this. Paul is saying you only stand here because God put you here. Rejoice. This grace you now stand in, it's grace. God gave it to you. You didn't earn it. God is on mission. He always has been. He always will be. Find security in him. Put your trust in him. Walk in gratefulness before him. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. And I would like for us to sing and to worship, to celebrate what God has done in us. And we've chosen a song to sing in which we recognize the stars and the creation. And at the same time, we recognize that the same God who spoke them has spoke life into us. And as a result, I'm hoping that whenever you go outside and see the stars, you'll think of Abraham and think that God promised him these stars and that we, because of faith in Jesus Christ, are these stars. Stand up. Lord, we thank you. Spirit of God, speak to our hearts tonight. Thank you that over 4,000 years ago, you gave Abraham a picture of us through faith in Jesus Christ. And Lord, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for life. We thank you for your peace that rules and reigns in our heart. Lord, we bless you. Holy Spirit, move among us right now as we worship you. May we sing this song of praise in a way that declares our faith. And as we declare our faith, may be credited even to a greater degree as righteousness and life. And may you bring all that you want to bring in these moments ahead. In Jesus' name. Let's worship the Lord. Blessed out the wonder of life And as you sleep A hundred billion galaxies are born In the vapor of your breath the planets form Stars were made to worship, so alive. I can see your heart and everything you made. Every burning star is a signal fire of grace. And creation sings your praises, so alive.
God loves you. Please hear that truth today, how much God loves you. Receive the love of God. Just like Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness, believe how much God loves you and receive it today. If you would like someone to pray with you before you leave, we're going to have some ministry teams to my right and my left. Just go to one of them. Prayer for healing, direction. Maybe you just need a fresh touch of the power and presence of God, the love of God in your life. Just go to one of these teams. They'll be in my right and left. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or even imagine. According to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in, through the church and in Christ throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day in the Lord. Stop.